have you been zombified by your love, by your relationship partner, by your wife, by your husband, by your boyfriend, by your girlfriend, by your non-binary significant other? Well, welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I am your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, Media Outreach Program Manager and Brain Enthusiast. Yeah, brains and love, and we're just covering it all this season. It's a big topic this season. Yeah. 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 So today we talk with Diana Fleischman about love and manipulation in relationships. Interesting. And so specifically, what aspects? So... Diana has a really cool background where she brings together the back, this background about behaviorism and sort of evolutionary psychology. And she brings them together to gain some insights into how we as humans actually sort of condition each other to behave in certain ways. Ooh. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, how do you use positive reinforcement to get your partner to do what you want them to do? How do you use negative reinforcement to get them to stop doing things you don't want them to do? And you know, this applies also to thinking about you know, parenting and, and other things as well. But uh, the big picture is really how, how to train those around you to behave in a way that suits you. So do you guys talk about the ways that people should be doing it or the ways that people actually end up doing it? Yeah, so we kind of weave between those topics. So a lot of it is just, you know, well, what is actually going on in Uh relationships and how do we sometimes unwittingly use behaviorist principles to manipulate each other? Um, And how can we maybe with a greater awareness of it be... uh, acting in a way that is uh, maybe kinder than we, we would if, if we don't realize actually what we're doing. So, so we kind of examine it both from the perspective of, you know, how it can get used in a negative way, but also how a greater awareness of what we're doing can help us be sort of more intentional about how we act in relationships. That sounds pretty useful. Yeah, it's great. So, uh, so we'll hear from Diana Fleischman this episode. Great. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how Welcome. Hi, Athena. Would you mind starting by just introducing yourself in your own words, who you are, where you are, what you're interested in? Okay, sure. I'm Diana Fleischman, and I'm at the University of Portsmouth, but I'm about to take a long sabbatical to write a book. And I study disgust, I study sex hormones and behavior, and most recently I've been thinking about how people manipulate each other in interpersonal relationships with what are essentially behaviorist techniques. Sounds so awesome. So how did you get interested in the whole like people manipulating each other question? Like what what made you get excited about studying that? I thought about this actually, I wrote a paper on it in graduate school uh, for David Buss was my, was my graduate advisor. And I wrote a little bit about it and I had been thinking about behaviorist techniques. And I think that behaviorists they were generally men and they were generally studying non-human animals doing very simple tasks and they were trying to come up with these kind of building blocks, essential aspects of behavior. But as an evolutionary psychologist, I was thinking if these certain things like reinforcement ratios, for example, giving a reinforcement at random intervals the way that a slot machine does, if that actually maximizes how long the behavior lasts before it extinguishes or before it stops, then it would be really surprising if organisms didn't use this kind of reinforcement for one another. And so that's around the time that I started thinking about that. But also I think when 
you're engaging interpersonally with other people. If you're an evolutionary psychologist like we are, I don't know if you've had this experience, but I tend to have a more cynical view of my behavior and my emotions than other people do. <laughs> in some sense, I'm radically honest with myself in a way that other people are not. So you'll often hear somebody say, I, I just have this bad feeling, but it doesn't mean that I'm jealous or I don't want to talk to this person, but it's not that I'm angry. And they're mm. trying to posit some kind of special pleading about their individual reactions to certain kinds of things. And for me, it really comes down to reinforcement and punishment, the way that people interact. And as a very simple and very cynical way of looking at things. And I think that there's a good reason why nobody wants to talk about what they're doing in that way because it actually would undermine them in the manipulation they're, they're trying to exert. Oh, yeah. that's interesting. So I think that the, the, the self-deception itself is important for that, that reason. But yeah, as an evolutionary psychologist, just interacting with people in the world and interacting in romantic relationships and sometimes you know having conflict and sometimes having really good cooperation facilitation, it just always seemed to me that there were these underlying behaviors, techniques that people were using on one another. And it's very similar to, I can't remember who it was, but you want to make the familiar exotic and the exotic familiar, that people who feel somewhat alienated in social interactions are often the people to figure these things out. And I think that because I'm so disgust and sensitive and not prone to guilt or shame, <laughs> I am actually more familiar. Like it always seems strange to me how people have certain kinds of feelings or that they weren't willing to admit certain kinds of bad motivations on their part hmm. and I don't have Asperger's but I do have a certain kind of blindness that makes me able to see this particular facet of human behavior that I think other people have more trouble seeing. That's really interesting so it's sort of this convergence of like number one some stuff that you like learned in undergrad and grad school about behaviorism and how behaviorism works and evolutionary psychology and then like your own way of seeing the world that is unique because of what you bring to the table just as a person and like neurally and then adding to that like the interactions with people where you see or feel things that like in that interaction that are yeah that kind of make you sort of connect the dots and I mean I think people talk about this a little bit but I think it'd be cool to do some kind of broad survey about how individual differences in personality actually really help some people discover things that they might not have otherwise discovered. I mean, we know about people in our field who have said that they're mind blind or that they have schizophrenia or whatever, and about how this kind of neural diversity actually helps people see human behavior in a, in a new light. Yeah, that's a really awesome point. And I think it's something that's been kind of neglected in academia. I mean, yeah. I think there's just now starting to be like a, a realization that neurodiversity is a thing and it's not just like, oh, there's normal people and then there's handicapped people. Like, no, there's actually like legitimate differences in how people process information, what they attend to more, how they learn, um, and like you're saying, how they discover. Yeah, there's so much individual difference. And, you know, people talk a lot about culture and culture is also a way of seeing things. You know, just the other day, somebody was asking me about jealousy and, you know, the way that we perceive jealousy in America as a very negative thing that we want to minimize, the sort of Latin interpretation of jealousy, and potentially you have some cultural experience with mm -hmm. other manifestations or thinking about jealousy as a very romantic thing that you want to maximize to show mm -hmm. your partner how much you care for them, mm -hmm. how much suffering you're willing to endure even for some small transgression hmm. so it's a way of it's kind That's of a costly signal not something that is really intended to be minimized mm -hmm. yeah so i'd love to talk about and kind of break down this whole thing about like the behaviorism yeah. and the evolutionary psychology and the interpersonal relationships and stuff can can you give like a you know just a short like you know what is the like one or two things about behaviorism that you need to know in order to like get how this is all working yeah I think it's amazing that people don't I mean I know behaviorism is somewhat fallen out of favor and they had some assumptions about the human mind that I think are not true but they also have some assumptions that have just totally been caricatured so B.F. Skinner totally thought evolution was a thing totally thought the genetics were a thing and definitely didn't think that you know, internal mental states didn't exist, uh, but he was really focused on the external manifestations of behavior. 
So the main things that you have to know... Sorry to interrupt, but did you say that he did think that... He did think that evolution and individual differences were important. And that there were internal mental states. Yeah, and just, that, yeah. he called that private behavior. Hmm. And he he was a fan of Darwin. And these were all... I heard a lot of slanderous lies about Skinner. I just happened to have worked... I forgot to mention this. I worked at a chimpanzee facility when I was an undergraduate called the Language Research Center, where they taught chimps how to use language with just behaviorist techniques and seeing interactions with chimps and, and with humans. So there was a chimp at that time, she died a few years ago, her name was Pansy. And Pansy uh, had an outdoor enclosure and she would recruit you to go and get food and things that had been stashed out there. So someone would stash something out there and she would recruit somebody, point to the food item on the on the symbol board. When, when you say recruit, you would like point to yeah, someone she there? Yeah, she would be like, you, come outside and, and then you'd follow her. You'd go all around the around the building. She'd go through a tunnel. So when you say she would say, you come outside, was she like signing or something? She was, she was literally pointing to a symbol and then she was, she'd do this thing, like, not a come hither with her hand thing, but sort of like a slapping her hand down on the floor, on her leg, huh. making some noise, making some grunting. And then she'd kind of play a game of warmer, colder with you. But in some sense, she was actually engaging in reinforcement as well. Mm. There was no colder. If, if you were in the wrong place or moving the wrong way, she would just look away and ignore you. Huh. But if you're going the right way, she would give you signals and, and grunts and things like that. So that was actually a form of her conditioning you right. to get closer to the, shaping you to get to the food item that you want. Anyway, behaviors, things that you have to know is that it's, it's actually exceedingly simple, basically, if you reinforce a behavior, if something pleasurable or good happens after a given behavior, then that behavior's intensity or frequency is going to increase. If you're punished, so something aversive happens, and you know, aversive, there's a broad variety of things that can be aversive, then that tends to uh, decrease behavior. You can also decrease behavior by taking away something good, uh, or you can also um, increase behavior by taking away something bad. Right. Mm -hmm. So you can get somebody to do what you want by stopping yelling at them or stopping crying because mm -hmm. you're removing an aversive st stimulus, okay. which, you know, increases the, the positive whatever valence of the situation. So the idea basically is that people are engaging in these kinds of interactions with each other, uh, reinforcement and uh, punishment. And that in certain kinds of interactions, like the interactions that mothers have with their children, they're very prone to shaping behavior. They're very prone to celebrating very small steps towards the behavior that they want the child to exhibit, right? But in adult interactions, because punishment is so cheap, people are much more likely to use punishment because it can prune away a given behavior much more quickly and you mm. don't have to use the memory, et cetera, that it takes to shape behavior. Shaping behavior is like you want your dog to sit if they just move their bottom down an inch, then you reinforce that behavior. And let's say you want your uh, husband to take you out on a, a nice date. You want him to take you out to dinner in a movie. It's pretty hard to shape that. I mean, I have some ideas about techniques, but it's pretty <laughs> hard to shape that. What you could do is just make him like feel really bad that he hasn't taken you out on a date. Mm. And then that's a, like, a lot easier than, for example, trying to like first you... you give him the phone number to the restaurant and then you stand there while he makes a call and then you reinforce that particular behavior and then you can put together the whole repertoire. Like that's not something that people do very naturally. Mm -hmm. What they do do very naturally is act irritated when they don't get the behavior that they want, if they don't get a signal of investment, for example. Mm. So the sort of very big picture here is like evolution has equipped us with these mechanisms for learning, right? Because mm -hmm. that is a good thing to be able to learn like what works, what doesn't work and you can then get better outcomes for yourself if you can learn. Yeah. But then once you have this learning system in place that works in this certain way, then other organisms can start tapping into that to try to affect yeah. behavior. And so, so now we're like in a strategic space instead of just a like, you know, input output kind of space. Now there's like feedback loops and there's yeah. like all this stuff that can happen. Uh, in terms of organisms affecting each other once. Yeah, and yeah. It, you can't you can't have not have these learning mechanisms. So if you engage in a series of behaviors and you get injured, it's very important for you to know not to engage in those series of behaviors anymore. If you engage in a series of behavior and you get food, then it's very important for you to, to remember those. And so when other organisms, you know, hijack those learning mechanisms and they reinforce and punish you, 
so that they can facilitate their own strategy, so that they can use your behavior for whatever it is that they want. So you can see this very much with parasites. This, this is all the way from like parasites to members of our own species. Um, when a, a guinea worm gets in somebody's foot, what they do is uh, the next phase of their life cycles in water. And so you can think about this from a behavior's perspective too. It itches and it burns, and the only way to get rid of it is to submerge your foot in water. So what this organism is doing in a very behavior sense is using uh, what they might call negative reinforcement. That is taking away an aversive stimulus to get you to do what they want, which is mm -hmm. put your foot in water. Um, if there are organisms that want you to, I mean, there's some ideas that, for example, that the flu virus might want you to interact with other people, for example. So if there was any kind of organism in you that wanted you to engage in certain behavior, uh, or, you know, if, if um, uh, cordyceps fungus is in the ant and it's driving them up that stalk, I don't know what the subjective experience of the ant is like, but it's probably a positive experience of going up. Right. It's probably feeling rewarded in some sense, yeah. you know, neurochemically, yeah. by going up that stalk uh, to where it can better transmit the spores. And then if I want uh, a, a man to invest in myself and, and my offspring, uh, then I will be using his learning mechanisms and using the reinforcements and punishments that I have in my repertoire to try to shape his behavior to facilitate my own adaptive strategies. So when you talk about like you wanting or like an ant wanting to climb up yeah. or um, you know a flu virus wanting to have you interact with others, what do you mean by want? Oh, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a very good point. Yeah, it's a shorthand way of saying that there's, that there's motivation, not necessarily that the end is in mind. So, you know, I don't think that the cordyceps has a conscious goal orientation or the ant has a conscious goal orientation. They just have this motivation to do uh, this specific thing. And if I am, you know, if I want somebody to do what I want them to do, it's not even necessarily that I feel a conscious motivation. It's actually the, the genes that in some sense are the very highest order thing that's hijacking our behavior, if you want to talk about it in that kind of hierarchical way. Yeah, yeah right. So we could sort of think about, you know, when we say wanting, it's kind of like a as-if intentionality. Like it's, you know, evolution has selected entities that behave in this way that looks intentional, but yeah. that doesn't necessarily mean that there's like, a seat of conscious, you know, motivation where they're consciously representing what they and We can get really want, meta right? and say that we are talking about people wanting and not wanting things because it's the easiest way for us to grasp yeah. how people do and don't do or how any organism does and doesn't do behavior is because yeah. that's how we conceptualize one another's behavior. Yeah. It's a good yeah. heuristic at least. Yeah. Who knows what, what's really going on like under the hood, right? Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so you talked a little bit about like the sort of very like basics of like behaviorism, but you mentioned something earlier about variable reinforcement schedules. Yeah. You want to explain what that is and how it relates to this whole, um, you know, training and interpersonal relationships issue. Uh, so, if you uh, you think about it in statistical terms, but it's not the most intuitive way to think about Maybe it. Maybe an example. Yeah. So if you uh, get reinforced every time you press a lever, you know, if you're yeah. a rat or whatever, if you or if you get reinforced every time you do or doing a drawing for your mom and she says, good job, right? Mm -hmm. That's one thing. But if you get uh, reinforced for behavior just at random intervals, so it could be every time you do it for a while, it could be every seven times that you do it for a while. What an organism, any organism does before they stop doing the behavior is they want to see if they can do the behavior enough times that they will be able to get the reinforcement again. So what happens with a rat that's pressing a lever is if they're on an, an interval uh, reinforcement schedule of like two, then they'll press the lever, whatever, 10 or 20 times, and then they'll quit. That's called an extinction burst. So you do a behavior a lot more right before it stops. Can you sort of explain that again? So what do you, you mean if they're on a reinforcement schedule of two, what does that mean? Oh, sorry. So if every two times they press the lever, they get a mm -hmm. pellet of food, for example. Yeah. Then if you stop giving them food, they're mm. going to try for a while to press the lever before they stop. And that's called an extinction burst. So what will often happen is, you know, what we call frustration. Yeah. Which is like if you do a behavior, like let's say you're trying to unlock your door and it won't unlock and you're used to the door unlocking every time, you might start doing things like you know, wildly turning the key mm -hmm. and, and uh, 
you'll be doing kind of experimental behavior, but you'll also increase the intensity and frequency of the behavior right before you stop doing it. Yeah, I'm just thinking of like someone like trying to get something out of a vending machine. That's right. right? Yeah. And then like they end up, you know, sticking their hand up there and then you have to call the paramedics. <laughs> this <Yeah>. disaster. <laughs> um, so that's that's the uh, kind of extinction burst. Well, if you like, let's say if uh, you have a, an animal and you or this is the slot machine thing okay. where you have a slot machine and you get reinforced on a, a variable interval schedule. So mm -hmm. sometimes you pull the slot machine lever and you get reinforced. Sometimes it takes a hundred times, sometimes it takes 50 times. It just, you never are sure how long it's gonna take. Then if you think about an extinction burst as like mm -hmm. exploring the whole possibility, like the, the number of times that you would usually engage in the behavior, like exploring what's the tail end of that when you would expect mm -hmm. to get uh, reinforced, you see that it takes a lot longer for that mm -hmm. behavior to extinguish. So mm -hmm. if you wanna keep a behavior around for a long time, if you want to make sure that if you don't reinforce it sometimes, that the person or the organism or whatever will engage in the behavior more often. So you don't want to give your dog a treat every time he sits. You want to give him a treat like at random intervals when he sits. And the same way, if you want somebody to do something for you, it's important, you know, at the beginning when you're shaping the behavior, you can reinforce them every time. But eventually, you want to be very variable in your reinforcement because if you don't reinforce for a long time, that behavior is going to not extinguish for a long time mm -hmm. because it, it, it's like a long way to get to the, the end of that potential payoff, mm -hmm. right? They're never sure when that payoff might come. Right. It's almost like there's a, you know, a bucket of, of goodies and like if you reach your hand in there and sometimes like you get something delicious and sometimes you don't, then mm -hmm. uh, if like if you don't get something good for a while, it's like you want to know, like, is there anything left in the bucket? And so you're just like, <laughs> right, or do I just abandon this bucket or do I like stick with this? Bucket? It's, it's, there's a lot of natural examples of this, but it's kind of hard to, you know, so I think, for example, for a cat engaging in kind of stalking behavior, there's two things going on. I think they're intrinsically motivated, like they find that pleasurable. Mm -hmm. Their evolution has endowed right, them with right. the pleasure of stalking things. But there's also a variable reinforcement schedule. Sometimes they'll be waiting for an hour and something good will come and sometimes not. And so uh -huh. they'll be engaging in stalking all the time Yeah, because that's on a variable reinforcement schedule as well. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that's why like if you're playing with a cat, like you can't give them too much of what they want, right? <laughs> right you have yeah. to like it's really boring yeah. for them, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, and I think that in interpersonal relationships, this is one reason I think that people are moody or that um, people exhibit what you might call emotional uh, lability, which is this fluctuation in emotion, is because it actually facilitates this variable reinforcement strategy that hmm. you sometimes reinforce somebody for the behavior that they give you and that you sometimes don't. You could never instantiate, I think, in human psychology, a full understanding of these behaviors principles. In fact, it's amazing how difficult we find them to grasp, given I think that we are actually using them all the time. Hmm. Yeah, that they're sort of just happening with our mechanisms, but we don't have that meta layer of awareness necessarily mm -hmm. that it's happening. And um, so the talk that I gave at HBAS here, the Human Behavior and Evolution Society here in Boston, was about how well people uh, can remember one another's preferences. So cats and dogs and other organisms, they have things that they like and they don't like, and those things are fairly stable, but humans are really idiosyncratic, right? If I brought you a cup of coffee or a piece of chocolate or a piece of watermelon, I don't know which of those things is gonna make you wanna affiliate with me more or be my friend, right? <laughs> like, I don't know, because uh, I don't know what kinds of foods you like to eat. And so one idea is that we are remembering each other's preferences and, and aversions in order to better facilitate, you know, reinforcing and punishing people. Because why do we remember each other's preferences? If you look at like a, a pair of birds, like a, a, a male who displays for the female, the female mates with him once, um, she's not gonna take the time to get to know his preferences because there's no, well, there's not enough time anyway. But uh, I talk about how in a couple of different uh, birds species the males are actually bringing the females foods that they prefer especially potentially on the nest and so you could think about that as a signaling device look I can remember your preferences right but another one is like if you give the the female the foods that she likes most then that's going to reinforce her better mm -hmm. than the foods that she uh, that she doesn't and so this research that I've looked at which is people in romantic couples 
How well do they know each other's preferences in a few domains? Are women better than men at remembering preferences? There's mixed evidence uh, about that. Uh, but also looking at people's like th things that disgust people. So that's my other main area of work. And weirdly, it seems in all of the studies about people's preferences, people get worse at remembering each other's preferences over time as the relationship it's goes weird. on. It's very weird, and almost every study has shown that. If you control for age, there's kind of no effect of relationship length. Are people's preferences changing over time, and they're like not updating, or they're just forgetting? I or think just... two things might be happening. One thing is like, yeah, age makes people forget. Older people tend to be the ones in longer relationships. That's one possibility. Um, another possibility is that the person who is reporting on that, so like, let's say I ask you like, how much do you like cake? And you're like, I don't like cake that much. And then I ask your husband how much you like cake, and he's like, she loves cake. There's no cake in the fridge because she ate it all, whatever. Yeah. And so that might be another thing is that people develop an idealized view of their partner or themselves over time, right? Mm. That's another possibility. But, um, you know, finally, it could just be that people don't, they either don't need to signal or they don't need to punish and reinforce each other as much as the relationship goes on. Funny thing, though, I did another study with a student where we were finding, asking romantic couples, can you predict how much this picture is going to disgust your partner. The longer people are together, the better they are predicting what disgusts the other person. That's interesting. And disagreeable people, so agreeableness is a, a big five personality construct, disagreeable people were better at predicting what disgusted other people. Hmm. So if you think about disagreeableness from this kind of behaviorist perspective, you might say disagreeable people are more, more prone to use punishment. And it's important for them, if they're going to use punishment, to encode, to remember what, yeah. what's punishing two people. So that's not, uh, I mean, you might not be able to, you know, actually create a scenario mm -hmm. that disgusts somebody, but you're never sure when these kinds of, this kind of stuff mm -hmm. is going to come in handy. And that's why we develop such a wealth of information mm -hmm. about each other. Or could it just be that they're more focused on the negative in general? Yeah, just like remembering negative yeah. stuff, like for themselves and for others. And yeah. Uh, we did the, in, in the, the presentation I just did, we also did the, um, the kind of mind in the eyes task where we looked at people's um, ability to detect emotions just looking at eyes, which um, I think that's came up, Simon Baron Cohen came up with that back in the 90s. And what we found was that uh, obviously people who are better reading other people's facial expressions were better at remembering their preferences or not. There was like a pretty high hmm. correlation with those things, especially in men. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So given that we have these ways of learning and they can get, you know, hijacked and used by others, um, is this necessarily like a exploitative thing or like can it also be like a positive, like mutualistic thing? Like can yeah. like can that get used to just like create a a better relationship or like better coordination or like use your brains better together? Like, is there a, well, is there a positive really side simple, to it? Yeah, simple way of doing it. Like uh -huh. think, a simple, think, think of a simple thing. Like if you're feeding your baby, your baby's your, you know, genetic vehicle. If you're thinking about it from an evolutionary perspective, mm -hmm. like it's in your best interest to feed your baby, but your baby still smiles and makes cute noises and makes eye contact with you when you're feeding him or her because that's reinforcing to you. So you and the baby are kind of mutually reinforcing each other for a behavior that's in your both, you know, in both your yourself. Mutual best yeah. interest, yeah. And people really celebrate mothers and celebrate maternal behavior, even though it comes quite naturally to most mm -hmm. people. They're adding reinforcement on top of that, mm -hmm. I think, as kind of insurance, mm -hmm. you know, in case you got tired mm -hmm. of it or something, I guess, mm -hmm. um, in order to, to make sure that behavior really uh, is perpetuated. I guess also sometimes, like, you know, the behavior could be, you know, in mutual best interest because you have that, like, deep fitness interdependence, right, because you're genetically related. But there might be some part of it that actually requires information transfer, right, in order to figure out, like, how to do this best to meet everyone's preferences that you know you maybe can't encode all of that like genetically in behavior yeah. and so so maybe there's some portion of it where you have to actually kind of establish a kind of a rapport or something yeah maybe the that ability to learn and have that like you know mutual manipulation happening like 
facilitates that possibly? Absolutely, yeah, that makes perfect sense. And, and also in terms of uh, you know cooperation, if, if everybody's on one team together and one person makes a goal, obviously it's in the group's interest. It's not manipulative to like give somebody a high five or say you're awesome after they make a goal um, for your team. They were intrinsically motivated to do that, but it's, people are still adding uh, reinforcement on top of it. So people generally use the word exploitation when they're talking about uh, getting somebody to do things that are like not in their self-interest, but are instead in your self-interest. But if you're reinforcing somebody or punishing somebody to do behavior that's also in their best self-interest, then that's uh, a more difficult thing to explain. So, you know, for example, if you're trying to encourage somebody to eat better food, you know, they might also want to eat better food, but then their evolved mechanisms are overpowering that because they like salty or sweet or fatty foods of certain uh, mm -hmm. kinds. So it's very difficult to say like what's exploiting what or who's exploiting who. I like to say that it's especially difficult because what are we, we're basically vehicles for our genes. Our genes have manifested behaviors in us so that they can get passed on. So that's part of you. Another part of you is all of the learning that you've done oftentimes because other people were reinforcing and punishing you for certain behaviors. So that's another aspect of you. So when you think that you have a desire or motivation, it's either from your history of learning or it's from your genes. So what's really like, what's uh -huh. really you, right? So if somebody sort of trains you or teaches you or reinforces and punishes you to do a new behavior, you're going to have a what I think is a kind of irrational attachment to that. Hmm. So we we have this aversion to other people changing our behavior because that you know, they could possibly exploit us. So we have an I think what is an irrational attachment to our pre-existing habits and behaviors because you know evolutionarily, if somebody comes along and wants to change you, then that often means that they're trying to change your behavior for their their own best interests. You see this in teenagers a lot when. When kids are kids, they're generally happy. Like if you say, great job for doing something, that's a reinforcement for them. If you say, no, you did badly, that's a punishment for them. But teenagers, because they're starting to get the impression that their parents' interests are not aligned with their reproductive interests, they want to go out and find mates or do whatever it is risk-taking that they want to do, and their parents are trying to prevent that. Things can really become flipped. Your mother's disapproval can become really reinforcing, and hmm. her... Um, uh, her approval can be really punishing. That's, That's interesting. Yeah, so like you see that uh, where if you think somebody's self-interests or interested not aligned with your own, you become desensitized to their their praise or their disapproval. Hmm. Yeah, and then so if we kind of think about this in the context of just like genetic conflict much more broadly. So um, we actually talked with David Haig a couple episodes ago about you know, maternal fetal conflict. And we talked to Amy Body also about like microchimerism and maternal fetal conflict. So like that's kind of a framework that yeah. we've like talked about before. And it seems like this question of like the behavior modification like in families is, is an extension really of this broader issue that like parent and offspring have largely, you know, overlapping interests, but not entirely overlapping interests, right? And the things that a parent wants, you know, for the offspring are not necessarily going to be the same things that the offspring wants. And maybe we can even put want and scare quotes <laughs> again, because, you yeah. know, evolutionarily, you know, you don't necessarily have that awareness. So, so yeah, so when you're a kid, like when you're a baby, when you're a toddler, like you really have no choice but to be completely, you know, dependent on your parents, right? So they have a lot of power then to potentially shape behavior yeah. in a way that might be in the best interest of the parents. I mean, even just like, you know, all right, everybody, let's share equally as opposed to like, you know, letting them fight it out so that the biggest one gets more cake, right? So yeah. um, seems like that that whole framework is, is totally relevant, the parent offspring yeah. conflict framework to thinking about what's happening and in families. Yeah, definitely. I think so. And, and I also think that this happens um, a lot in, in relationships, uh, so that there's a lot of, in, you know, in all kinds of relationships, friendships, uh, parental relationships, and, and in romantic relationships, where people, there is this kind of uh, struggle of um, kind of reinforcement schedules, and then also desensitization to certain kinds of punishment and certain mm -hmm. kinds of, of reinforcement. And I, I am really fascinated by this kind of 
thing that happens with teenagers where if their mom says, I hate what you're wearing, that's, that feels awesome all of a sudden. They're like, okay, now I know I'm on the right track because your disapproval actually is a good indication that my peer group will, will like this. That, that's yeah. interesting. Yeah. Hmm. So, so you have this process that happens where like you can get this like reaction that's almost like, I know that you're trying to manipulate me and so therefore... I'm just whatever you say. I'm not gonna, not gonna do it. Is it like because there's like a suspicion about well, there's a, yeah, there's a there? suspicion that yeah about that. But that's another reason why I think people are very unaware of their their manipulative tendencies. Like you know, even saying thank you and please and smiling at people and hugging people and uh, giving somebody a compliment, bringing up an embarrassing story. All of these things are ways that we can like reinforce and punish each other. And if you were consciously aware of that, those things, then you'd be less well able to use them. Hmm. So one thing that I talk about, I'm, I'm writing a, a book and a paper about this, is that um, behavior is, behaviorism has shown that the sooner you punish or reinforce a behavior, the most effect that it has. And so there's this selection of automaticity over awareness. You want to punish or reinforce the behavior as uh, soon as possible, which is one thing that causes the self-deception. But another thing is that if someone thinks that you're trying to get something from them, right? Mm -hmm. Even though all friendships, all relationships involve some kind of desire of benefit like that's mm -hmm. we're cynical enough to, to know that but if you consciously think about that then you're going to discount all of the ways that somebody's trying to make you feel good or or, mm -hmm. or um as as kind of self-interested uh, yeah. manipulation so that's why it's kind of important that we engage in the self-deception because yeah if you have this impression that someone is interacting with you for their own self-interest um then you know, if, if this is the same kind of stuff as if somebody's trying to persuade you of something, uh, then you're you're much more likely to doubt what they say than if they're just having a conversation. Yeah, yeah it, it seems like it kind of ties in with this issue of like, are you like emotionally like valuing someone because of their like instrumental value, like what they can do for you? or for their intrinsic value, right? Like, yeah. just like, I like this person, like they're a person that I like. And right, those emotionally are really different, like the way that we yeah. represent them in our nervous systems, like totally different. If you're like, oh, I like you because you can, you know, connect me with this thing, get me this job or whatever, that's very different than like, I like you because like you're good company and it's fun and we, you know, have a good time together, right? Like yeah. that's a very different way of, Approaching, yeah, a friendship. If if you're thinking about what is the the Cosmetes and Tubi um, thing about uh, welfare trade off ratios, which is like how much money would I forfeit in order for you to have money? Like thinking about the trade off in terms of money, right? Yeah. I've even heard people say things like thinking about relationships in this way at all in a quantitative way is actually immoral right mm. or even thinking about morality in a quantitative way which i do all the time is immoral. <laughs> so people are really averse to the quantification of human feelings of human suffering i think that's actually an obstacle to psychology generally mm. because of this resistance uh, to manipulation that's kind of a, a very basic level mm. so i think that that's um one reason why people give responses on surveys and things like that because people just don't want to be able to be predicted that's one thing hmm. but also people just don't like the quantification of of relationships and yeah exactly i like you and you're fun is different than like i have these objectives in interacting with you but that might would be what the underlying programming looks like hmm. in i like you and we're having fun <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah 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 so Maybe should we get back to like the the whole question about like what is like going on in like nuts and bolts like in interpersonal interactions mm -hmm. like with reinforcement. So you mentioned something earlier about like, you know, with the variable reinforcement schedule that I thought was yeah. interesting, like that at the beginning you like if you're trying to reinforce someone, I'd say in a relationship, like you should reinforce pretty regularly and then like later like make it a variable reinforcement schedule mm -hmm. like it sounds kind of like that might be a little bit of like you know people complain like well when we first started dating yeah. like you always blah, 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 uh, yeah. right but then you stop like and 
do you think that's the same really kind of thing? People also, people also punish and reinforce each other for like not getting the reinforcement or punishment that they were expecting or not getting the reinforcement that they were expecting. So yeah, if I do something nice for you and then you don't say thank you, then I will feel angry with you and I'll, I'll have a desire to punish you because I didn't get the reinforcement that I was expecting. So it's like layers on, on uh, layers of this kind of stuff. Um, so, you know, you said at the very beginning of a relationship, people will say, well, at the beginning, you always reinforce certain yeah. things or whatever. Uh, I think courtship is really interesting, kind of from a behavior's perspective, because you're very strongly, you know, reinforced by what the other person is doing in courtship. But that's also the period of time when you're learning somebody's preferences a lot. Like you're really spending all of your time mm-hmm. encoding everything about them that you can that you can learn a lot of stuff about what they what they like and they don't like uh, the things that rile them up and the things that um, make them happy and so that's another thing that happens in courtship is that people also can see the whole behavioral repertoire that somebody's capable of so let's say you get together with somebody and they're actually showing you not only their best behavior but also um, the largest you know breadth of behavior so what um do, do people do that do yeah uh, what skinner i mean uh, this is how i'm relating it to, okay i'm actually the only person who ever said this so skinner and some other um some some humanist psychologists have talked about if you're in a, th- in a therapy office what the therapist does is gives you unconditional positive regard so no matter what you say or do they regard you positively and they engage with you positively right and what you're going to see is if punishment prunes away behavior in the face of unconditional positive regard, you're going to see a proliferation of behaviors. You're going to see way more kinds of behaviors, verbal behavior, private behavior, hmm. and other behaviors than you would than you'd normally see, things that are often suppressed in relationships with other people that involve punishment. And it seems to me like courtship is really similar. Courtship very rarely involves punishment. Courtship also involves mm. kind of unconditional positive regard. Oh, you're telling me about that drunken weekend you had with your friends? I like Tell me every detail of it. I want to hear all about it. And so it's really the best way to learn about somebody is to completely suspend your punishment in those early stages of a relationship. That is really interesting. Wow. So just by like being so fascinated and enamored with someone and having like this feeling that they could do no wrong and they have done no wrong and like all of their escapades are just an expression of how venturesome they are. I'm like, whatever, like all yeah. of that could just be there to make it so that they're going to expose their whole behavioral repertoire to you so you can learn them. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, when you put it like that, it's not very romantic. I mean, courtship is considered really romantic, but actually it just seems like the, it's like the exploration phase of the exploration exploitation trade-off, right? You explore the whole landscape of their behavior, the whole landscape of their, their individual differences and their mm-hmm. personality, and then you figure out how to exploit it best in that exploration phase. Mm-hmm. And exploration lasts a you know, varying amount of time, depending on how long uh, courtship lasts. Um, people have said that courtship is, uh, you know, or uh, people call the honeymoon period, which is a little bit later, is ideal for facilitating um, having a child. But it seems to me that generally by like nine months into a relationship, if you conceived like really soon after you met, you're out of that courtship phase and you are starting to use punishment in your interactions with a romantic partner, hmm. usually around mm-hmm. that time, I would imagine. Hmm. So it seems like also with this whole courtship thing, if like, you know, you are learning your full behavioral repertoire, like there could be a, a positive side to it, which is like learning each other's weaknesses and strengths and maybe being able to like divide cognitive labor better or something yeah. by like really understanding each other? Well, I, I, one thing that I talk about is that uh, people are likely to punish others even if that person had nothing, they had no conscious regard for what they were doing. So let me give you an example. If somebody I know, like my romantic partner, doesn't remember something about my life, like I know that he didn't forget on purpose, but I still am inclined to punish him for forgetting. Mm-hmm. Similarly, uh, we know for sure that bedwetting is a behavior that kids engage in and they don't mean to wet the bed, right. they're asleep. But punishment still happens when kids do things even if those things are not under the control. So if you have a trade-off between uh, punishing something that is not under conscious control and just giving somebody some negative feelings versus punishing something that... It, what I'm saying is that there's a kind of a bias, basically, to punish uh, 
rather over over not punishing mm -hmm. overall because uh, it's better to to punish a behavior than to leave or not get the opportunity to to prune away a behavior that you that you don't like and so during courtship what you see is what somebody's capable of right you're seeing somebody's best possible behavior but even if you never saw a behavior during courtship this is what i sometimes tell female friends of mine it's like if you didn't see a behavior during courtship it's not something you should punish someone for not exhibiting later because you Wait, were what seeing, do you mean like if so if yeah. a man never took you to a spa or bought you flowers or gave you a massage or wrote you poetry when yeah. you were in, during courtship then you can't get angry about that behavior being lacking later because you saw the whole behavioral repertoire. But I think still people are inclined to punish when they don't see behavior that they want mm. because we're biased towards punishment. Mm -hmm. And especially because we live in a context in which we often don't see our romantic partners admired by other people. We don't mm. see that there's competition for our romantic partners. And so I think the impetus is even stronger to punish them because mm -hmm. where are they going to go? They have no other, there's no other game in town but you. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think isolated families, isolated couples, that leads to more punishment in interpersonal mm -hmm. romantic relationships mm -hmm. than you might otherwise see. Because, you know, in, in traditional societies, if a man had more than one wife, then they were in some sense, you know, they were often being really nasty to each other, but they, if one of them was nicer to him than everybody else was, then she was going to be getting um, a better deal as being his wife than everyone else was. So there was a certain amount of competition to see who could be more rewarding to that, to that if, there, if there was like co-wives mm. for a particular husband. Whereas if a woman is monogamous with a man, I mean, it's unclear, you know, she's not necessarily competing with anybody else to be nicer to him than anybody else, right? So I think this is one kind of problem. If you don't see that your partner is valued by other people, it's very easy to get into a very strong punishment cycle with them. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of ironic in a way because like the whole way like that punishment works, it's sort of cheap and easy for the person doing the punishment, yeah. but like in the long term, it can be really costly on the person who's getting punished, yeah. not just because of like the immediate cost of the punishment, but doesn't it also just like increase like anxiety more and like if you're getting yeah. all that right so so if you're but so if you're locked in with someone like you should be trying to not be imposing costs on each other as much right because you're like you're in it together for the, yeah. the long game but there's a lot of kind of cynical reasons why that might happen and kind of a learned helplessness state where somebody's basically kind of stuck where they are that's that's a, a sign um but that's basically what abusers do, right? Abusers punish and punish and punish, and the person gets in this kind of depressed state. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're kind of pruning away all the behaviors that that person could use to find another mate. Mm -hmm. And they're locking that person in psychologically, mm -hmm. right, by eroding their self-esteem. But that constant punishment, yeah, also causes um, like that kind of learned helplessness mm -hmm. state. And so people talk about those behaviors as sort of being maladaptive. But if you have somebody that's much better than you, like if a man has with a woman who he thinks has got very high value, then he might want to do that hmm. uh, in order to, you know, so a man might be abusive with one woman and, and not with another, depending hmm. on how much he wants to prune away any behaviors that she would use to hmm. find another mate. So how might somebody like recognize if that's happening to them like what would that look everybody like everybody does that to some extent right? yeah but like um, you know like what you know if someone's listening to this and they're like hmm i wonder if like i'm in a relationship where i'm getting you know like seriously negatively reinforced and like maybe it's not good for me like what like what what would make i think it's i think that there's a little bit of a double standard about this these days uh in that i think that if if you hear a man saying I'm afraid to bring up certain topics with my wife because I'm afraid that she's going to yell at me or I don't see my friends as much as I used to because my wife disapproves or whatever. You might say, oh, that's really terrible. Sorry. But if a woman says, I can't see my friends because my partner would disapprove and I can't talk about certain things because I worry about my husband's disapproval, you'd say you're in an abusive relationship. right? Mm -hmm. So I do think that people are more sensitive to when men do this to women than when women do this to men, obviously below the threshold at which there's physical abuse happening. Mm -hmm. So um, I would say that, yeah, if you feel like constant low level anxiety, if you feel like you're walking on eggshells, but so many people feel like that in relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes, I mean, not all the time, but sometimes that's solved by the, 
one person making it clear to the other they have other options and then they get treated better, right? Mm. So if you think about, there's some kind of termite species where the, the female uh, finds the male and the male has got these huge antenna that he uses to, these like solitary termites, uses to, to find females. And uh, when the male comes in to the female, they're monogamous after that point, and the first thing she does is snip off his antenna. Hmm. And I do think that some degree of that kind of thing <laughs> is happening in, in romantic relationships. And it, it, it really rains on people's parade when I talk about romantic relationships in this way. Mm -hmm. But I think that if we're really conscious of how we might tr be trying to reduce other people's mate-seeking behavior, so one man might punish his, his girlfriend for... Uh, wearing feminine or tight clothing or, or wearing uh, makeup. Uh, a woman might uh, punish her partner every time he sees, she sees that he's like looked at a woman on the street, for example. Both of those have the same goal, uh, but people are not consciously aware of that goal. Mm -hmm. hmm. So in, in relationships, like you mentioned, that there's kind of this double standard a little bit yeah. in terms of that. Do you think that that like exists because there's sort of like structural differences like between like the opportunities that men have and women have like you know there's still like the pay differential and like all this stuff or, or that oftentimes men are older than women in relationships and so people are like more biased towards wanting to protect women like they see them as like the more vulnerable group yeah or, i think people see women as more vulnerable yeah. and um uh tanya reynolds uh did some studies showing that uh people are more sensitive to women's pain Mm -hmm. uh, than they are to uh, men's pain. And people, for example, if you ask them to donate to like a woman's only homeless shelter, mm -hmm. even though men are homeless at a much higher rate than women, people mm -hmm. are more likely to, to take that seriously. I think that's, you know, the kind of women and children on the boats first. Women are more valuable, you know, in the absence of any individual markers. Like obviously a high status man has a certain value, but women like as a whole, as a group, mm -hmm. Are considered more valuable because mm. and they maybe, have the big gametes and they are investing in offspring <laughs> and um, but also sometimes more vulnerable right and so people want to like help the parties that they see as more vulnerable like in yeah. a system right there's a there's a dichotomy that people don't think about very much there's a study um i think paul bloom was one of the authors on it which is about um, objectification versus animalification and mm. they had pictures of women clothed or nude or in kind of sexy poses and they said you know how much do you think this person can make their own decisions how much mm. do you think this person experiences pleasure or pain and the nude women or the sexy seeming women they were thought to be like less agendic right like less able to make decisions less competent but they were also thought to be more sensitive to experience more sensitive to pain and pleasure and so if you're thinking about somebody in a sexual way you might not think that they're like so it's actually not objectification what people are doing when they sexualize someone. In some sense, they're, they're actually animalifying them, which is they're saying, I don't necessarily think you're as competent as I did before. I thought about you as a sexual prospect. But I do think that you're more sensitive to and more vulnerable to, to pleasure and pain and that you have more, whatever, they called it experience, right? And I do think that this actually explains a lot about these kinds of differences if you think about sexist behavior or you think about um, discrimination is that actually people are very concerned with women's feelings and how they experience the world but they don't always think that women are as competent to make their own decisions hmm. so if we sort of think of it in the like context of zombification they're <laughs> like okay you know they they have this bias when women are presented more sexually, that they're like not as autonomous acting, decision making, yeah. um, but they have a lot of experience. So it's almost like pulling apart things that we almost like put together, right? Like experience and consciousness and decision making, but they're like getting. I mean, it could just be there. a way that the the your your courtship psychology is like simplifying another person so that it elicits more behavior towards them, like more courtship behavior towards them. I can't really, you know, hmm. I haven't really thought much about why that bias uh, necessarily happens, but it doesn't seem like it's a cut and dried, you know, bad thing to think about somebody that way. Mm -hmm. It's also the way we think about, uh, you know, other vulnerable people like children. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if you wanted to, you know, use all of these things that we've like talked about <laughs> today, um, for good, like either to protect yourself or to, you know, like have, uh, to protect others or to like create positive 
long lasting relationships where you're not like negatively reinforcing each other and getting stuck in these like cycles of punishment. Um, are there any like, you know, tips or advice that you would give for like how to use this to make your life better and well, to will, make the world a better place? Yeah, <laughs> I, will, I will be writing a book about this. It's going to be out like probably in a year and a half or something like that. So I'm awesome. writing about this right now. But I think that for me, having some cynicism about my own motivations is really important. Like, why am I angry with this person? Why am I motivated to bring up uh, something embarrassing? Why am I motivated to stop talking to him or stop making facial expressions or, or to just people generally, right? And uh, you can dig down and what generally people don't do is they don't think very much past, I'm upset. They don't kind of think about the deep reasons or if they do think about the deep reasons, they think about them as virtuous possible reasons that they could have for mm -hmm. feelings, the feelings that they, that they do. Mm -hmm. And what I'm saying is that uh, if you're willing to admit that you are an animal that's trying to kind of maximize the investment of others, mm -hmm. then actually you can treat people even better than if you think that you always have uh, good and virtuous mm. motivations. So I think that the general advice that I give people is to, to, you know, to be cynical about yourself and be skeptical of your own feelings. And uh, yeah. it's very easy to just kind of go through life without actually having some some insight into your you know native programming and I talk about mindfulness too is that it's very hard if you feel jealous or angry or upset or even happy and grateful to hold those emotions at arm's length and to examine them mm -hmm. without some ability to feel them in your body and to notice that that's not you. That's kind of your state right now, but it isn't. It isn't you itself, and it's almost impossible to do that in yeah. like highly aroused, you know, jealous, angry states. Sure. Uh, but it, you know, it's true that if you are like, okay, I feel this kind of knot in my stomach. I feel my heart racing. My hands feel cold. If you kind of take a stop like that, it's amazing how much it reduces those feelings. So th these are the things we'll be talking about, you know, in, in the book as well, not just. You know how to have a more skeptical and cynical, and I'm I'm always used cynical in like a really positive way, <laughs> but also, you know what actually practically you can do to get a better better perspective. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So at the very end of each episode, <laughs> I have to ask the like zombie apocalypse scenarios. Oh, yeah. Okay. So now it's like you know we have right all these organisms. We have these learning systems, and then we can hijack each other's learning systems. And if we take this ability, this capacity, this thing that's already happening, and we just like turn up the volume on it, what kind of zombie apocalypse are we in? What if we all had like cannulas in our brains and I could administer like delicious chemicals directly to you every time you did something I liked yeah. <laughs> directly in your mind? I think that the kind of zombie apocalypse version of this is actually, and we're about to go see a talk by, by Ed Hagen, is drugs. Oh, I mean, people, the drug doesn't actually ask you to ask people for spare change or to, you know, give up steal from your grandmother or anything like that but that reinforcement and that punishment the reinforcement of taking the drug and the punishment of of not having it that aversive feeling drives so much behavior all of your behavior for example and people have said you know love is like a drug people also do things for romantic partners uh, because of the pleasure of their approval or to avoid the pain of their, of their disapproval. But yeah, you could turn this up. I also always thought when I watched Star Trek, like if people really had telepathy, uh, they would, <laughs> would be terrible. <laughs> because you could actually be in somebody's head uh, engaging in these kinds of techniques. And certainly, I think people reward and punish others for manifestations of what they think are thoughts, right? If I don't feel like you're listening to me, or are you because you're thinking about something specific? I could, you know, that that could be something that would trigger an angry outburst, a form of, of punishment. So yeah, those are I think some some zombie apocalypse yeah. learning, zombie apocalypse Skinner. 
Yeah, because if we, if, I mean, if like I, you know, had like an app on my phone, right, and have like all of my Facebook friends or something, and I could just like push a button to make them <laughs> feel like good or bad, like for anything, which, I mean, is that kind of what we do when we're like liking Social media is very like, like dopaminergic. Yeah, I, I have felt so much better since I've been off of it. I have to go back on. But yeah, it's, it's very dopaminergic. And yeah, that refresh, I don't know if you've gotten in that cycle where you're like, have I gotten more likes? Have I gotten more likes? Crazy. I mean, is that are, is that kind of like, yeah, behaviorists tapping into each other's brains through this these apps? Like, where you, like well, I, that's, there's a there's a whole more complicated thing I think going on there, which also involves that reinforcement for signaling, and about people like your signaling values that I agree with. I'm going to reinforce you, okay. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And certainly there are kinds of flame wars that people get into online because they are not getting all the cues that would make them stop. In interpersonal interactions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So there's a couple of zombie apocalypse scenarios <laughs> for this, I guess, some of which we're already in. <laughs> I was like, well, Diana, thank you so much for sharing your brains with us. Thank you for eating my brain. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> and if the whole world says that we're crazy, we don't need nobody anyhow. But if Zombified is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. Thank you to the Department of Psychology, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative, and the President's Office at ASU, also to the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Big thank you to all of the brains that help make this podcast, to Tal Ram, who does our sound, Neil Smith, our awesome illustrator, and Lemmy, the creator of our song, Psychological. Thank you also to the Z team, our amazing undergraduate team who support our podcast. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. We're Zombified Pod and we're Zombified Podcast on Facebook. Our website is zombified.org. You can also support us by going on Patreon. We are totally educational. We have no ads. So um, please, if you like what we do, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. It's $1 a month. Um, or if you're open to supporting us at a higher level, just $5 a month would be really, really awesome. You can also support us by buying merchandise. There's t-shirts and stickers. You can find them on our website, www.zombified.org. Uh, and finally, you can support us by leaving a review please consider going on Apple Podcasts and leaving a review of Zombified. All right, now we've gotten to the end of the episode where I share my brains. Um, and this time I want to do actually a little bit of a um, public service announcement and then share some of my thoughts. So uh, the whole issue of abusive relationships kind of came up in this episode. So um, I wanted to say a few words about that. I think that um, you know, when we talk about zombification, there's sort of a, you know, negative extreme, right, where one individual is hijacking the other in a way that is not in the best interests of the other, and that's like the negative end. Um, and there can be a more positive end, right, where maybe there's mutual manipulation for mutual benefit. Um, and I think it's important to sort of distinguish, um, you know, in relationships when, that mutual influence 
um, crosses over into a sort of, you know, one-sided, negative, coercive kind of control. And I'm no episode, I'm, I'm no expert on this, um, but uh, I looked online and um, there's some great resources. Uh, there's hotline.org and um, they talk a little bit about this relationship spectrum from healthy to unhealthy to abusive. And they say that, you know, an unhealthy relationship is one where you have sort of inequality and you have a power struggle. Um, but it, it goes into abusive when one partner is really mistreating the other and there's no option really for communication. So, um, and one example or one component of this is when one partner has economic control. Um, so if one person controls all the money and access to resources, then that can really contribute to the abusive scenario. Um, and I wanted to bring this up because Diana brought up in this episode the this double standard of people being more likely to worry that a woman is in an abusive relationship than a man is, you know, sort of given the same information about what's happening. And I think oftentimes women are still at a disadvantage economically compared to men, and this puts them in a weaker position to advocate for themselves, therefore making it more likely that they'll end up in a relationship that might be unhealthy or abusive. And so I think that that whole context is an important part of sort of understanding why people potentially respond differently to the same kind of information about what's happening in a relationship. So if you're in a relationship and you worry that it, and you're worried that it might be abusive, um, please seek out resources like hotline.org. Um, and also, you know, if you're in a relationship and it's sort of unhealthy, uh, welcome to the rest of us. Like, I think the for the majority of humanity, um, you know, relationships often kind of involve these um, zombification dynamics, some of which are benign, um, some of which are, like, really positive, and some of which can be damaging. And so, you know, hopefully we can use some of the knowledge and strategies that Diana talked about to reduce the burden of zombification in our relationships. So one of the things that she offers um, is this idea of being more cynical about the reasons for what you were doing. And I guess I would add to that that maybe you should be especially sort of cynical or reflective if you are the person in the relationship that has, you know, greater power, like socially or economically, um, that, you know, that that might be, you might be at more of a risk of actually, you know, engaging in um, these behaviors, maybe even without realizing it. So um, I think that's a, that's important. So you can ask yourself, you know, am I using my more powerful position to try to zombify my partner? Um, and if you are reflecting on that honestly, um, then that will probably improve the quality of your relationship. So like I mentioned, though, zombification in relationships doesn't always have to be bad, right? And and one of the things that can make us actually really happy is this sort of positive mutual zombification, like um, what Mark Flynn was talking about um, in one of our earlier episodes about, you know, possibly the definition of love or an approach to love being that it's enjoying being exploited. So, you know, it can feel really good sometimes to be zombified and to be in love. Um, I would just offer that, you know, it probably only makes us happy in the long term if this love zombie scenario is a equal opportunity zombification situation. Thank you for listening to Zombified, your source or fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you.